sitting and standing this morning, but today feels like a good day to ask you all to join me as we stand and read the second reading today, which will be our sermon text for this morning. And again, we will read from Psalm 118. So hear the word of the Lord from the psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. You may be seated and join me in prayer, please. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise and we give you honor this morning, Lord, for the miraculous work of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds this morning, Lord, out of our own little resurrections from sleep, Lord, to come and to worship you, Lord, and to give you praise and thanks for accomplishing our salvation in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so, Lord, as we consider your word this morning, as we continue to worship through hearing your word, Lord, we pray, God, that you would honor it, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out among us this morning and to cause us to hear and to believe and to understand. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, last week on Palm Sunday, we, um, we considered other portions of the psalm, and we actually just reread some of those same verses again this morning. But as Luke told us, as we looked at last week as well, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus, after his resurrection, while walking on the road to Emmaus, properly framed the entirety of Scripture around himself. And so as we continue this morning through our sermon time looking at the Scriptures, of celebrating the bodily resurrection of Christ, I want to just build upon what we laid out last week and consider it within the light of the resurrection. And we can do this really very simply, I think, by focusing our attention on verses 14 through 18, and I will tell you where that picks up in your bulletin. But we will do so by focusing our attention on two things that are brought out in those verses, which are death and discipline. So, If you will, read with me again verses 17 and 18, which begins with the phrase, I shall not die. Again, the psalmist writes, I shall not die, but I shall live 
and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So last week, if you'll recall, I I made a comment from Church Father Origen. Origen was an interesting guy, and I really like his stuff. But he made a really interesting connection in verses 19 and 20, which, again, this is in your bulletin as well. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. So he, Origen makes a connection in those verses to between the gates of death, uh, excuse me, the gates of righteousness and the gates of Yahweh. He makes a connection also to a gate of death. And so here in these few verses that we're looking at this morning is where we can fully see the implications of Origen's statement. And we pointed out last week, building on what Origen stated, that Yahweh promised to Abraham in Genesis that his seed would possess the gate of his enemies. And by passing through the gates of righteousness and the gate of death, Christ Jesus, the promised seed of Abraham, took possession of the gates of his enemies, the gates of Satan and death and Hades or hell. So also last week we, we read a, a statement from Christ himself from Revelation 1 But now, in light of his bodily resurrection, hear that statement again. Fear not, he proclaims in Revelation 1. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I possess the gates or the keys of death and Hades. But notice here in these two verses that we just reread that... On this particular day, as we celebrate more intentionally the resurrection of Christ, these two verses force us to really deal with some hard questions surrounding the death of Christ. Again, these verses state this, I will not die, and also in verse 18, Yahweh has not given me over to death. So then, because we know that Jesus did indeed die, we had a service remembering that and contemplating that just two nights ago. Because we know that Jesus did indeed experience death, how do we interpret these two verses rightly with what they say here? How do we understand this psalm in light of the resurrection of Christ without trying to force this particular text to say something that it doesn't mean? I think that is a wonderful question, Christ Community Church, and we are going to answer it together. <laughs> so thank you for asking that question, right? That's a dorky, that's a dorky joke that's in my notes, so you can all laugh. But... But let's answer that question together, right? Let's do it so that it frames our celebration of Jesus' resurrection rightly. So again, for clarity's sake, here are those verses one more time. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So starting with death, we notice again here in these two verses that death and dying are repeated. I shall not die. God has not given me over to death. We know that everything dies, right? Every plant, every animal, every human being, frankly, even every planet and every star at some point will die. Everything dies. Because, as Paul tells us in Romans, sin demands its payment. And the wages of sin is death, right? In Hebrew, the words for death and die have, have the same root, And as with all things in Hebrew and even in Greek, these words are very multi-layered. So while death and die are appropriate translations in our bulletin, which is the same translation that I have in my Bible, I imagine some of your Bibles with different translations probably also say death and dying. 
These words can also mean a few other things. They can mean deadly disease. It can mean plague. It can mean something we've all been aware of the last few years, epidemic. Or, what I think is a better translation, it refers to the realm of death. Or, Sheol, or if you're looking at a Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, Hades. So it should come as no secret that any decent Bible teacher, preacher, will consult other Bible teachers and preachers through commentaries and study Bibles and listening to sermons or even talking on the phone to friends that are pastors and teachers as we study Scripture and as we look at preparing sermons and lessons, right? It just it makes sense, right? This is, this is something that we honestly should be comfortable with, right? This is standing on the shoulders of those who have studied before us. This is how iron sharpens iron in a lot of ways. It also helps us to keep what I would consider the plumb line of orthodoxy, right? You, you understand by talking to someone else, Man, that's not right, or, man, you're spot on. But at the same time, we should always subject each commentary and each conversation and each resource to the testimony of the entirety of Scripture. And I mention this because, and now I'm coming back to the different definitions of the word death and die. I mention this because attempts, and I stress the word attempts. Attempts were made within some of the commentaries that I looked at to suggest that this idea of death and dying in these two verses are merely or simply symbolic in nature, that they're not literal. And as we as believers, they would say, would be better served to focus only on the second part of verse 17, which says, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Now, yes, absolutely, right? It is true. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's absolutely true. I'm not denying that. And if I do, you need to throw me out of the building. But what they're missing is that eternal life is not obtained without the death. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 tells us, there is no forgiveness of sins. So before we can even begin to understand the heights of the joy of the Lord's favor of life in verse 17b, we have to grasp the depths of our sin and of death because sin is a disease. Sin is a plague. It's an epidemic. And all sin results in death, which itself is a disease, is a plague, and an epidemic. Now, if I am rightly then understanding the language that God inspired here in this psalm, then frankly, it is nowhere near sufficient to suggest that what is being experienced here is merely a symbol of death. And I think it's misleading and it's naive to even suggest so. Because it also assumes that symbolism itself doesn't really matter. Or that symbolism is less real than what we would define as real. God is constantly using symbol throughout the entire Bible, to speak to a truer reality than what we will ever be able to fully comprehend. Some speak of the Eucharist as symbol. It is symbol, but it's more than symbol. Even with the context, within the context of this psalm, suggesting that this death is merely symbolic or just suggestive is wrong. This death is not just suggestive, it's inevitable. See, the history behind this psalm, this is a psalm that is known as In Hebrew, a halal psalm or a psalm of praise. 
And in the history behind this psalm, this is a psalm of praise of the deliverance of the nation of God from their enemies. Consider how bringing this forward in the resurrection of Christ. But any simple reading of the Old Testament, we realize that God shows that his deliverance of his people always came through exile, through oppression, and even through death. The death spoken of here in these two verses is not and was not merely just suggestive. It is an inevitable death. It is going to happen. So then what do we do here and, and how are we to make how are, what are we to make of this in light of Christ and his resurrection? Well, what does the language suggest? It says, God, the Lord, has not given me over to death, or he has not given me over to the realm of death. Now let's let Scripture interpret itself. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to Hades. Or to the realm of death, nor let your holy ones see decay. In Acts chapter 13, on their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas quote this exact psalm as they speak of the resurrection of Christ. And they say, We bring you good news that what God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. As it is written, You will not let your holy ones see decay. And they say, Because David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died. And he was laid with his fathers, and his body decayed. It decomposed. But Christ, whom God raised up, his body did not decay. It did not decompose. Or some translations read, it did not see corruption. Meaning what exactly? That Christ Jesus, although he died a literal, bodily, physical death, he was not given over to decay. He was not given over to decomposition and corruption Because he was not abandoned within the realm of death. Instead, Christ was literally, bodily, and physically raised up out of the realm of death. He died, but he is risen. Calvin writes here, he says that the psalmist speaks as one emerging out of a tomb. And then he says, and this same person who says, I shall not die, acknowledges that he was rescued from death. So fear not, Christ proclaims in Revelation 1. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, but I am alive forevermore. That's death. But what about discipline? And I'm doing them in this order on purpose because the discipline builds out of the death. Now discipline, especially the discipline of Christ, is hard really for any of us to kind of fathom sometimes because... How does discipline in Jesus relate to a victorious, sin-forgiving, raised-from-the-dead Savior that we go out and beg the world to put their faith and hope and trust in for eternal life? So listen again to these two verses one more time. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I'm not even going to pretend to kind of build up and beat around the bush on this one, right? We're just going to dive right into it. So if, if you've got your Bibles or a device, if you're willing, and if you're not, do it anyway, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. All right. So Hebrews is toward the end of the Pauline letters because it might have been written by Paul. It may have been written by somebody else, but that's why it's where it is, right? So make your way to Hebrews in the New Testament. If you get to the book of James, you've gone too far. If you get to the concordance, you've gone way too far. 
And if you've gotten to the maps, then somebody needs to lean over and tell you where to go, right? So go to, go to Hebrews chapter 5. And then once you get there, I pulled a little sneaky on you, right? Back up a few verses into chapter 4 because we're going to build up into this, right? So keep in mind the discipline of Christ as we begin reading here. So starting in verse 14 of chapter 4, this starts a whole new segment, which is why I'm backing us up. The author of Hebrews writes here, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, a high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt or glorify himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'll stop there for a second. So, so the reason I, I bring all of this up is because, especially there in verse 5, Christ was appointed by God who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We saw this exact same phrase used last week when we were looking at this psalm. And we noted that in the beginning of Romans, Paul tells us that Jesus was declared or he was appointed or, for lack of a better term, he was proven to be the Son of God. He was proven that he is who he says he is by his resurrection from the dead. By bodily raising Christ from the dead, Yahweh opens the gates of death and righteousness to Jesus and gives him possession of the keys to those gates. But then Hebrews 5 continues, and he says in these two verses, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. But although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, Make your way back to Psalm 118. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 18, Yahweh has disciplined me severely, but he has not given my body over to decay within the realm of death. This is a hard reality to grasp. Not just for people that do not believe, but frankly for us sometimes. Right? It's hard to grasp that Jesus, the man who was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, the sinless, sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it is hard for us to grasp that Jesus had to learn obedience by being severely disciplined through suffering death. This is the mystery of salvation that has been worked out by God from before the foundations of the world. But it is not without purpose. For the moment, Hebrews 12 tells us, for the moment, discipline seems to be painful rather than pleasant. But later, 
Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is how God has been victorious in the bodily resurrection of Christ over sin and over Satan and over death and over Hades. This is how we have been ransomed by the bodily resurrection of Christ. Christ who stood in our place as our propitiation, as our substitute, paying the wages for our sin in his own sinless body, he was disciplined for us so that he would yield in us as our trainer and our instructor the peaceful fruit of his righteousness. Clement of Alexandria writes this. He says, consider the carefulness and the wisdom and the power of our educator. And he says, the very act of being disciplined and being educated by the Lord as a child means deliverance from death. A Trappist monk from the Middle Ages named Gurik, which is the best name ever, Gurik of Igni, he writes this. He says, as the tidings of Jesus' resurrection resound and re-echo again and again through the church, you might say to yourselves, they have already told me that Jesus, my God, is still alive. But, he says, upon hearing this, my spirit, which was asleep through weariness, my spirit which was languishing through tepidness, my spirit which has been disheartened through fearfulness, has revived. For the joyful voice of this happy message raises even from death those who are buried deep in sin. For the moment, discipline seems to be painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. But he was not given over to decomposition within the realm of death. His body did not see decay and corruption. Instead, he is alive and he recounts the deeds of the Lord to us as his disciples in order to yield in us his righteousness. So then, and we're almost done. So then, because Jesus learned obedience through suffering... By his death and his resurrection, Christ has now become our song and our salvation. So double back to verses 14, 15, and 16 in this psalm, and we read this. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. And the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Within the resurrection of Christ, Yahweh has proclaimed to us now the new, the better, and the everlasting exodus for the people of God. This is our delivery from slavery. And it's not a coincidence that these three verses are directly from Exodus chapter 15, which is called the Song of Moses, which was sang as a celebration of the Lord's deliverance after Israel passed through the Red Sea. So let me ask you again, if you're willing, turn with me to Exodus 15, because I'm going to read the first 18 verses. I know that's a lot, but I want us to see this connection, and then we will come to the table together. So starting in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, we read this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. There's Psalm 118, verse 14. 
This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. There's verses 15 and 16. And greatness, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, and my desire will have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. But you blew your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. There is the right hand of the Lord again from, from Psalm 118, 15, and 16. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, and they tremble. Pangs of death seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone. Until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So turning back to our psalm, let's connect some of these words and then we'll be done. The word strength that is used here in verses 14, excuse me, in verse 14, as well as in Exodus 15, speak to God's authority in our salvation. Whereas the word salvation in Hebrew, which is Yeshua, speaks to God's work of salvation by his judgment upon the enemies of himself and his people and his deliverance of his people. But it's the meaning of this word song that I want to land very briefly because this, song, this word song can also mean victory song or glad songs as verse 15 begins. And because of the victory through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the tents, the churches this morning are filled with joy and with victory. Because what is it we proclaim at the beginning of every Resurrection Sunday morning? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Right? So what does this mean? Right? What, does this, what does this psalm have to do with us today? What does it mean for those of us who are not in a celebratory mood this morning? Who are not joyous? Who are hurting and who are, frankly, might be angry or frustrated What does it mean to those of us who are beaten down and who are worn out and exhausted by life or by besetting sin or by oppression from the enemy? Where is my hope, you might be asking this morning? Beloved, your hope is in the bodily resurrected Christ who has been obedient and who has been victorious in his death and in his resurrection. Because Christ, who died for your sins, 
was also raised for your justification, and in him your life is now hidden in God. These are the victory songs and the shouts of Psalm 95 that we looked at a few weeks ago. O come, let us as the congregation sing to the Lord, and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Last Sunday, I stated that this psalm brings really all of our seasons of the celebratory season into full circle. But today, in the feast of the resurrection of Christ, this psalm actually brings the invitation of all of our seasons together into full circle, which is come and see. Jesus has told us that the fields are white or, or are ready for harvest. So we are to go out into the highways and into the byways, or the old song says the highways and the hedges. Go out into the city, go out into your neighborhoods, and invite all that you meet to come to the wedding feast and to see the resurrected Lord. Come and see the one whom angels sang of his birth and of whom kings from foreign lands brought lavish gifts. Come and see the one who turned water into wine and whom the spirit rested and of whom the father is well pleased. Invite them to come and to see the one who endured every trial and every temptation, but yet remained sinless. Invite them to come and see the one who yielded up his own life and who bled and died for our iniquities. But also invite them to come and see the one who was raised from the realms of death. To come and see the God-man who is alive again. Come and see Christ Jesus, your God and your master, who possesses the gates of his enemies that are also our enemies. Come and see the one who holds the keys of death and of life. Come and see the bodily resurrected Christ. Because this is the day of victory. The day that God has made. And it is miraculous in our eyes. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thanks be to God. Amen.